What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. What if this letter contained my father's final confession? What if it was a compendium of his trastiendas, the word my Cuban mother had adapted as a more resonant way to describe secrets? According to her, every person carries at least one trastienda from a place in the heart where such secrets thrill the day and deepen the night. Perhaps these trastiendas were more like dark thoughts that had been in the cobweb corners of his mind. Once I knew about these trastiendas, would it make me like Icarus, flying too close to the sun and dropping from the sky? Would it be like opening Pandora's jar, or as it was later mistranslated, her box of woes and releasing them to the world? Reading about my father's troubles in his hand might make them my own. I was afraid to know everything about him, and yet I was too curious to leave his secrets alone. That's Judy Bolton Fassman journalist, essayist, and author of the memoir, Asylum, a memoir of family secrets. Imagine receiving a letter from a parent, a thick envelope that might just explain everything, a letter that might answer a lifetime's worth of questions, and the persistent sense that there are mysteries and secrets at the core of your family's life. And then, imagine what happened to Judy. Before she had a chance to open the letter, she received an urgent request from her father. Please destroy the letter I sent. Burn it without reading. And she did. She respected his wishes and watched his words go up in smoke.
I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Seventeen thirty-five asylum was the iconic address of my childhood. Everything revolved around there. It was a small house. It was a three small three-bedroom colonial. It sat on the corner of Asylum Avenue and Ballard Drive, and I want to say that it sort of sat on the corner of desperation and dreams as well. My father's desperation, my mother's dreams, and vice versa. And those two were often in competition and often clashed. Those two aspirations. I also lived across the street from a magnificent field that belonged to、um, a small Catholic women's college, and I would watch. And this was in the 1960s, and nuns were still in their habits. And I would watch the nuns, mostly in pairs, they were they were never alone, kind of almost float across the field. And of course, there's my mother's, you know, total dream of an American house, and she was so proud of Asylum Avenue for having a built-in. Vacuum cleaner. I mean, this was something that she would have never dreamed of back in Cuba. This is in West Hartford, Connecticut. Describe your father, Harold. Harold was much older than my mother, Matilde. He was intimidating. He was strict. He had been in the Navy for five years during the Second World War, and、uh, he sort of treated his kids like little soldiers. Sometimes he had his very quirky ways about him. He was also very smart, and I knew that even at a young age. And I also intuited that he had done a lot of living. Although I don't know if I would have articulated it that way back then, but he had done a lot of living before I was born. How old was he when you were born? He was forty-two, which is not old by today's standards. But I was born at the end of nineteen sixty, and my mother was twenty-five. So there was quite an age difference. There was even a cultural gap. There was a generational gap. You know, he was always much older than all the other fathers when I was growing up. But I didn't feel that lag. I didn't. You know, he wasn't tired. He was energetic. But he was very stern when he went to teach night school. I mean, it was like a party in our house. You know, my mother would put on Cuban dance music. We would dance. We would have、uh, TV dinners. You know, the whole thing. It was almost like a celebration. And he was very strict about our bedtimes. He was, you know, he even at one point would shout to eight-year-old me, "Would bang on the door, Navy shower, don't waste water, Navy shower." And the Navy shower was that you would rinse, you would turn it off, and then you would soap up, and then you would rinse again. That was the Navy shower, and it was actually terrifying to think my father was on the other side of the door screaming Navy shower. He also served in the Navy during World War II. He was an officer. And、uh, I think that that gave him some gravitas, and it, you know, made him very American. He had served his country, and he was very proud of that. I should also say he was also a rabid Yale football fan. I mean, his his life revolved around Yale football games. He had a very prodigious memory, and he memorized every single fact about Yale football. He was also an alum. Yale football almost defined him, and almost defined my childhood in many ways. And also, his father, your grandfather, was an alum, right? Yes, which was very unusual because my grandfather、uh, graduated with the class of 1913, the, the Sheffield School of Engineering, and、um, he was an immigrant. And he, my grandfather, 
basically fiddled his way through Yale in that he had he got a musician's union card and he played in a lot of society orchestras as a student to earn his tuition. What do you think your father's obsession with Yale football was about? I think that it was a, it came down a bit from my grandfather. My grandfather wanted nothing more than to leave behind Ukraine, where he was from. He, he came when he was two years old, so he was very, very young. He probably didn't really have a memory of, of Ukraine. But he wanted to be an American. Our name was Americanized, Bolton. He himself, after graduating from Yale and working as the city engineer, city civil engineer for the town of New Haven, had a society orchestra with another Yale graduate. But, you know, my grandfather was always on the other side of the door looking in, so to speak. Like I always picture him being on the other side of a glass door, looking in on parties that he would have never been invited to unless he was actually playing the music for the parties. My mother, she came from Havana. She immigrated to the United States in 1958. And she came here as a 23-year-old young woman looking to finish uh, her schooling because the University of Havana had closed. And she came to Brooklyn and rented a room from some cousins of her father's and uh, had a hard time of it. She wanted very much to work at the United Nations as a translator, and that didn't pan out for her. So she typed forms and she typed invoices at a watch factory. And the first winter that she was in Brooklyn, she caught pneumonia because she just, you know, she she came from a tropical climate and was not used to the bad weather. My mother was also a person who lived in her fantasies and living in her fantasies, she missed a lot of what was happening in real life. And one of the um, stories that she told was that when she was a student at the University of Havana, she was taking a test and she heard gunshots and this president of the student body had died of the gunshots. Batista's henchmen got him. Well, she was telling this story to a friend of mine who was doing a project on immigration. And mind you, I'm over 40 years old when she's telling this story. And suddenly something clicks and I start, as she's, as she's talking, I'm Googling dates. And I realize that her dates don't line up. None of it lines up. And I realized she never attended the University of Alabama. She made that all up. So do you think that some of your, you know, profound desire to know your parents, particularly your father, but really both of them, stems from this feeling that you had as a kid that it didn't all add up, that they didn't, you know, actually seem to be who they were saying they were? In part, in part. And also when I was a kid, I thought they were you know, the most glamorous couple in the world. No matter what went on during the week, no matter what, you know, rows they got into, on Saturday night or early Saturday, you know, early, early Saturday night, it all stopped. My mother was all glammed up to go out. She was beautiful. And my father was in khakis and a sport coat. And off they went to, you know, eat dinner with friends or to go to a show or whatever they were doing. But every Saturday night they went out. Every Saturday night we had a babysitter. That was a boundary they put. And they didn't have very many boundaries in that house, I can tell you. 
So when you talk about rows, what was the marital tension between them like? And and what did it encompass? You know, what was your sense as a child of what that was about? It was mostly about finances. And they were my mother was very, very disappointed that my father was not the older Yale graduate, more established uh, kind of guy in, a, in his career that she had hoped he would be. She was looking for status. She was looking for security. She had grown up very insecure in Havana. And uh, she was looking to my father to provide her that security and that financial stability. And, you know, we weren't poor by any means. I mean, we lived in a nice suburb, but she wanted very much to keep up. I remember them fighting about bills that came in from a store one day. And she looked at me and said, we're going out. She didn't drive, so we took the Asylum Avenue bus about two miles west, and we went to Lord & Taylor. And she bought the most gorgeous suit at Lord & Taylor. And I remember her whipping out that green card with the white lettering, and, you know, she was Mrs. K. Harold Bolton at Lord & Taylor. So in part, it was to, to get back at my father, and in part, it was to be the Mrs. K. Harold Bolton that she always wanted to be. There was a dangerous quality to her. She was wily. She was just a wily survivor. She actually ended up getting her master's degree without ever having gone to college. She told the uh, registrar there that there was absolutely no way to get her transcripts from Havana. And, you know, in those days, Havana was really locked up. I mean, there was the embargo and nobody was getting through the embargo. And she basically told them, it's locked behind the Iron Curtain. I can't get those transcripts. We don't have any sort of diplomatic relations with Cuba. And you'll just have to take my word for it. And they let her in. I was very, very attached to her. There was something very alluring and compelling about her. When I became a teenager, the dynamic changed. But when I was a little girl, she was sort of the permissive parent. I don't think they wittingly did this, but they almost played good cop, bad cop with each other. And she was always the one that I ran to for comfort. And in turn, she ran to me for comfort. We comforted each other, which is not always the healthiest relationship to have with your eight-year-old, but that's the way it was. And I just adored her. And when she would threaten to leave the family or run away or she couldn't take it anymore, I mean, it devastated me every time. Judy is not alone in her experience of her good cop, bad cop parents. She has two younger siblings, a brother and a sister. Harold doesn't really understand little kids in general, let alone his own. To young Judy, her dad seems kind of scary. In fact, she's scared of him. The summer that Judy is nine, her mother, Mathilde, gathers up her and her siblings, and they go to Miami, where Mathilde's extended family lives. But to complicate matters, not only does Mathilde not drive, but she doesn't fly either. She's terrified of airplanes. So they take a train, Mathilde, Judy, and her siblings. As the train departs, they see Harold recede into the background. 24 hours later, we arrived in Miami. My sister had motion sickness. My brother, he was very little, so I'm not sure what was happening with him. He was, he was acting out, he missed my father. I knew I was terribly homesick. I had never met people like my mother's family. They were so different than the Boltons of New Haven. They were brash, they were emotional, 
and they spoke Spanish. And I spoke a little bit of Spanish because that's how I communicated with my maternal grandparents who did live in Connecticut. But I have to say that first summer that I went to Miami and that we lived in Miami for almost three months, that was the first time I really realized that I was Latinx in some ways. I realized that my mother came from Cuba, from really another country. And the thing that I remember most about that summer was my mother's relatives and a lot of Cuban expats that lived in her cousin's apartment building gathering every night to try and catch errant airwaves from the television to see Fidel Castro talk. And they were just bent on seeing him. They would fiddle with the channels. They would fiddle with the rabbit ears. For a man they hated so much, they absolutely had to see him. And during that period of time, there's no word from your father? None. I knew that they had had a fight and that she was going to leave him. My Bolton grandparents sent us money, which my mother kind of pocketed. And we stayed sort of in a very run-down, shabby hotel across the street from my mother's cousin called the Royal Hotel. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the uh, the owner of the hotel because I would go to the front desk almost every day and ask if I had had a letter from my dad. And she would say, I don't think he's going to write you. <laughs> you know, I was looking for basically, my dad was a very prolific correspondent. Even when I was a little kid, he sent birthday cards and Valentine's cards in the mail, which was just an absolute thrill and also reflected that formality that he had. And he sent the sugariest, glittery Valentine's cards. And I was basically missing him and lonely. And I was looking for a Valentine's card in the middle of July and I never got it. We'll be right back. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. 
your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. During this long, lonely summer, Judy scrambles up dimes and tries to reach her father, to no avail, via payphone. Eventually, after about three months, he does come to make up with her mother and collect them all. At first, he insists that they're all going to fly home together. But Judy's mother simply cannot fly. So back on the train to West Hartford they go. Once she's home, ever curious about her parents... Judy begins to do what so many people who intuit that there are secrets do. She snoops. I always thought of them as glamorous in some way, and I always wondered about my dad so much older, living a life, a full life before he had me. And in some ways, I found evidence of that. I found a picture that unfortunately no longer exists of him in literally a pith helmet and flowing khakis, And in the back of the picture is written Guatemala 1952. And that forever piqued my interest. So much so that later on I would go on to write my MFA thesis about that and about him. Sometimes when we stumble upon something that has meaning, even if we don't know what that meaning is, somehow like it shimmers, it takes on this kind of weight to it. There was something about Guatemala as it pertained to your dad that you had a feeling about. Well, it was so far away and it sounded so exotic. And my parents were very social in those years. My parents had very loud, raucous, joyous parties. Um, They were friends with a lot of Latinx people in the Hartford area. And there was a lot of um, singing. Someone inevitably brought a a guitar to my parents' house, and my mother sang. She had a beautiful singing voice, and her song of choice was usually Guantanamera. And I remember, you know, watching those parties almost from the top of the stairs, or at least trying, trying to listen in. And I think that added to the whole romance and the whole curiosity of who my parents were. And at that time, coincidentally, I was reading a series about a detective girl who happened to be named Judy Bolton, which thrilled me to no end to see my name on the cover of a book. So I think I also 
took on that persona and had a little bit of fun with it. The becoming Judy Bolton girl detective. Exactly. When Judy is 12, a young woman, around 19 years old, comes to visit. And so begins the summer of Anna. Anna just sort of literally showed up in our lives. Um, There was really no context for her. But we, you know, my brother and sister and I loved her dearly. We, she was just a lot of fun. And when Anna was around, my father was so much more relaxed and, and happy. You know, the guy who, who made us drink skin milk let us get sodas. You know, we could do all sorts of things. We could have sugary cereals because Anna liked them. So whatever Anna liked, she got from my father. And as a consequence, that spilled down to us. And uh, we could sort of share in her, in her bounty. What was your understanding, if any, of why Anna was visiting you? Anna was staying with a local family, and she was supposedly an exchange student. But, you know, my mother was very suspicious of her, very jealous of her. She was the cause of a lot of tension in our house. She would, you know, tell my father, you love her more than you love your children. You're in love with her. I mean, she didn't quite know what role to put her in. Was she someone that he had a crush on? Could he have been a child of hers that he fathered in Guatemala? She just, you know, looking back on it, I realized that she was confused. But Anna was staying locally with a family in West Hartford. And she was introduced to my family because my father had spent time in Guatemala. And she consequently spent a lot of time with us. We took her to New Haven. She met my grandparents. And she also met my father's best friend and his family. And we frequently went to their house for the weekends, too. Tell me a little bit about your father's best friend. Felipe and my father became friends through Felipe's brother, who my father met when he was studying at the Wharton School after the war. Felipe was the person that my father visited often in Latin America or traveled with in Latin America. And they were very, very close. And even though Felipe lived probably a good two-hour drive from West Hartford, I placed him in Westchester, we went to visit them, you know, probably every six weeks. The two families were very close. The two wives actually got along very well. And my father and Felipe were always huddled in a corner talking. And we just assumed that, you know, they were just close traveling companions and close buddies, and we really didn't think about it. But Felipe had an American mother and an El Salvadoran father, and he grew up mostly in El Salvador with boarding school in the United States. My mother had always wanted me to go to a Jewish school. My father grew up in a totally assimilated family. Even though my grandfather's father was a rabbi, She used to joke that when the first time she had her own kitchen, you know, when she moved out of her parents' house and she was married, she made a pork roast. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what she used to say. They were very, very, they did not observe anything. They barely went to synagogue or to temple. And my mother grew up among the Sephardic community in Havana, and she grew up very traditionally. She went to a Jewish school, as most Cuban Jewish kids did in her generation. And she was a believer, and my father was not. I think that was the strict dividing line. 
And when she had finally had enough of me being in public school, I think the, the thing that really threw her for a loop was that they were teaching us sex education and she just could not abide that. So she enrolled us in the local yeshiva. I was there for sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And in my last year there in ninth grade, there was a community of Lubavitch educators that came to teach us in the school. And I became very mesmerized by the community. I loved that there was an embracing community. I loved that they were so you know, kind to me. And it just seemed to be an oasis from my family life where everything was just so tense and you know, my mother constantly upset and my father trying to do something about it. So that was the weird part of my education. I left the yeshiva as an ultra-Orthodox Jew and my parents were having none of that and they would not let me go to a boarding school, a Jewish girls boarding school in Brooklyn or in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, I said, well, I only want to be with girls. I don't want to be in a classroom with boys. And they said, well, here are your two choices. Miss Porter's school, which I didn't think that I would be a very good fit, or Mount St. Joseph Academy, the local Catholic girls' school. And, you know, I was a teenager, so I had a bit of obstinate streak to me. And I said, and I thought I would last there two weeks and that they would they would give in and send me to the school I wanted to go to. I said, I'll go to Mount St. Joseph Academy. And it was definitely a strange situation at first, but I really ended up liking it. And at that time, the nuns were younger and they were out of their habits and they were very social justice minded. And I just, I loved being around them. I loved the support. I loved the female energy. And by the end of that year, I had sort of not only just acclimated, but I had sort of found my way to a Judaism that was not as extreme and uh, something that I could feel that I was still very Jewish but not alienating my family, which was, it was very hard. That was very hard when I was observing Shabbat and wouldn't eat their food and only ate cold food on their plates. So it was a hard time and I couldn't sustain it. And in the end, I didn't want to sustain it. I made friends and I loved it. And I taught my friends about my religion and they taught me about their religion. And I never had to go to religion class with, with them, I, I got to, to sit out in the study hall with the Protestants. And it was just, you know, <laughs> it all worked out. And the nuns were very accommodating. We wore a uniform at the Mount. And there was a patch with a cross inside a crown. And I did not have to wear that patch. I did not have to wear that cross. And do you think, Judy, that, you know, sort of the drift toward ultra-Orthodox Judaism had to do with to some degree, either differentiating yourself from your parents and your family or a sense of order, you know, that there are rules and rituals to follow for absolutely everything. Um, Was that a source of comfort? I think it was both those things, but I think above all, it was like a community that I felt I was embraced by. It was a sense of belonging. There was no judgment. And I I really liked that. I really, and I needed that. I was sort of a, a lonely kid. And beginning at that time, my mother was really having a hard time watching me grow up. And I was embraced by that community. And I just, it was very compelling to me. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Though Judy's mother has a hard time watching her grow up, that's inevitably what she does. She finishes high school and she goes off to college. And then she begins to have panic attacks. These panic attacks begin to govern her life, as panic attacks often do. First one I had was when I was 19. Um, I had had little mini ones looking back on it, but that one seemed to be the one that I like to describe as taking hold of me. That was the one that divided my life into a before and after. I was never the same again. And I I remember it as clear as, as I remember, you know, this morning. I was visiting a boyfriend uh, down in Baltimore. He was in college there. And I was going back the next day, going back home for the summer, and I was very upset about being separated from him because I would have to deal with my mother, who by that time was really my jailer. She really uh, didn't let me do anything. She only let me, which is kind of ironic, she only let me, you know, go out with this boy and be with him all the time, which there wasn't a lot of safety in that, if you think about it from the perspective of a parent. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night he was sleeping soundly, and I was gasping for air. I could not breathe. 
and I was just encircled with this feeling of absolute dread and fear. And as I said, it divided my life into a before and after. As I got older, I realized that my mother was a such a bully because she was so afraid of the world. Her bullying was really born of fear. And she was she also had panic attacks. I mean, she didn't call them that, but that's what she had. Uh, and I remember when I was in such desperate straits and I, I just couldn't stop crying and I couldn't go anywhere and I was so anxious. I just, all I could do was crouch in the shower and, and cry. She said to me, if you don't stop this, I'm going to have you admitted to the Institute for Living. I'm going to commit you. And that, of course, was my ultimate fear, that I was crazy. So she played right into my ultimate fear. And I will never forget the way she said that to me. Judy graduates from college and her panic attacks continue. What plagues her most is the constant anticipation that she's going to have another one. But she presses on. She moves to New York and gets a job in publishing. She pursues her fiction MFA at Columbia, where she works on a thesis that allows her to become closer with her father. She also meets the man who will become her husband in 1991. They have two children, Anna, named after Judy's grandmother, and Adam. My father and I had rediscovered each other after I went to Columbia and I wrote a thesis called The 90-Day Wonder. The 90-Day Wonder was a deliberate reference to his service in the Second World War. Uh, it was a program for college graduates who were fast-tracked to be officers because there was such a need for officers. We were going to war, and he was a 90-Day Wonder. And he literally was immersed in everything naval for three months. And uh, he came out an ensign. And at the time, I thought the term was so splendid because it was 90-day wonder. You know, it was wonderful. But after doing some research for the book, I realized that uh, it was a pejorative term and that they were uh, called that by the enlisted men or the sailors or whoever they were, whoever were under them. Because, I mean, these guys had to salute 23-year-olds and they had socks older than those 23-year-olds. So it was a very tense relationship. And I wrote a thesis, I was then a fiction writer, and it talked about my dad in the Navy. And it also speculated about my father's time in Guatemala, because by then I had become very suspicious. Why was your suspicion level rising and rising? What was that about? And also, do you think that enrolling in an MFA program and writing fiction, um, which is sometimes a way of actually getting at the truths that we don't know, was that subconsciously an attempt to figure him out? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I, I wrote a lot about him. I mean, a lot of the stories are in a different form of matter now because I didn't keep them and I didn't include them in my thesis. But yes, I had by then learned a thing or two about American history and about our involvement in Latin America. And I started putting dates together. And I was just very, very suspicious of what he was doing there. What was a Jewish guy from New Haven, Connecticut, doing traveling throughout Guatemala, who worked at the United Fruit Company for a while, which was a well-known CIA front? I would say, hey, Dad, you were spying, weren't you? And he's like, don't be ridiculous. You always make things up. And, we, you know, we would joke about it. And we were becoming friends. We had never really been friends. 
we would go out and get beers together when I came home for the weekend. He came to visit me in New York and hung out with me and my friends in, in a bar. I mean, we really, we really liked each other. This friendship between Judy and her father would soon be challenged by his struggle with Parkinson's disease. He died in 2002. After her father's death, Judy sets out to continue her relationship with him somehow. To keep him near, she decides to recite the Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead. According to tradition, a child recites the Kaddish for a parent every day for 11 months. The prayer is recited in synagogue with a minion, which is a group of 10 adults. This isn't easy to accomplish, but even on vacations, Judy never misses a day. She always finds a minion, and she always says Kaddish for her father. It's also during these 11 months that Judy's antennae are really quivering. She is yearning to put together the pieces of her dad's elusive and mysterious history. And so she consults, as many do when trying to uncover truths about those who have passed, a medium. I kept a journal the year I said the Kaddish and thought that it would be a book and thought it would be a book that I would eventually write. But the book was going nowhere. It was just nice insights and, you know, memories that would only be of interest to my family. And I knew that I had to do more than that. I knew it had to have an arc. It had to have scenes and action and not just about me going to synagogue every day and remembering my dad, which of course is lovely, but it's, it's not compelling reading. So I consulted mediums and one of them was a man at my synagogue who had had a near death experience and started seeing spirits around people. And he was eerily accurate. He did not know anything about me. I had not published anything about my dad at that point. And when I came to his house, he said, I'm getting two, two initials that are really important, an A and a K, which is of course Anna, my grandmother, and Ken, my husband. But I'm also, for some reason, it keeps sending me to the globe and asking me to look up Guatemala. And, you know, maybe he could have put it together, but I doubt it. There, I really didn't have any kind of internet presence then. So that deeply impressed me. And then I went to someone who was just a charlatan. Both mediums do have one striking thing in common. They both hold up four fingers to represent the number of children her father had had. But Judy was just one of three, right? Well, maybe not. As she and her siblings got older, they grew increasingly suspicious about that wonderful summertime visitor they once had, Anna. Was Anna their half-sister? The mediums suggested as much, and so Judy sets off on a quest to find out more. She reaches out to her father's best friend, Felipe, and asks to come visit. Maybe he'll know something. Felipe, at that point, was, was an old man. When I visited him, I was almost 50 years old, and he was in his 80s. And he had an apartment in New York City, and he also lived on a coffee farm, or at least that's what he told me, in El Salvador. And I had been telling a friend, I really need to speak to someone who knew my dad back in the day. And there's really only one person that has the answers. And she said, sweetie, go find him. And I found him on the internet. I had to spell his name in a lot of different ways, and it wasn't that easy to find him. But I did find him. I did persist, and I, his name just popped up on this obscure 
list of reunion attendance at, at, at the school he went to. So I emailed him. I only had his email address. And he wrote back almost within minutes and said, it's a miracle. I found you or you found me and we found each other. I mean, he was just so, so thrilled that I had made contact with him. And I said that I wanted to come visit him. I visited him a few times in New York City and I interviewed him and I asked him what my father was doing in Guatemala, what their relationship was, and what Felipe was actually doing with my father in Guatemala, because he seemed to have a, he seemed to be a big part of my father's life back then. And he was very hesitant and secretive to answer any of my questions, but he did finally answer. And what did he tell you? After maybe an hour and a half of chit-chat and catching up on family, I said that I had come there to ask him a question about my dad and him and their relationship. And I wanted to know if my father had been in the CIA. And there was a long silence. You know, it's funny, I don't remember that silence as being necessarily uncomfortable. I remember it as giving Felipe a few moments of grace to kind of pull himself together. And then all he said to me was, yes. And I said, what did you do there? And he said, I can't really talk about it. And I said, surely it's declassified. Surely, you know, at that point I was filling out FOIAs and I wasn't getting anywhere. Surely you can tell me a little bit. And he said, your father and I believed in the United States and believed in democracy in Latin America. And your father was a very noble man and he was a patriot. And, you know, we would do that dance every time we saw each other. Your father was a noble man. He was a patriot. Yes, we were in Guatemala. Yes, we tried to overthrow, or actually they did help overthrow the Arbenz government. I asked him about Anna, and he said, I can't tell all of your father's secrets. He just was not willing to go that far. One of the things that he says to you is, insert your father into history, and you will have the whole story. Exactly. He was very enigmatic, but that's, he said that to me a few times. So Judy does her best to imagine her father in the context of his history. What had he been doing? And where had he been doing it? What were his secrets? At a certain point, she contacts Felipe again. She really wants to crack him about Anna. She longs for the truth and is pretty sure Felipe knows more than he's told her. But when she reaches out, Felipe is unwilling to share more. Well, he hangs up on me because I had called him from the Yale library where I was doing research. A reporter friend of mine said, go and read your dad's class notes. You'd be so surprised at how illuminating they are. And in addition to reading my father's class notes, I also read the class notes of his cousin who graduated 20 years earlier from Yale. I'm his namesake, the man I'm named after. And I don't know what compelled me to, to read his class notes. I just, I just thought it would be interesting. And I was there already, so, and I, you know, I had a hotel room for the night, so why not? And as I was reading his class notes, I'm reading class notes from the early 1950s. And this cousin of his is talking about going on junkets to Central America. And it just hits me that the, he was the one that, was my father's CIA handler and the one that got him into the CIA and the one who recruited him. I mean, who goes on a junket to Latin America 
but that's what he wrote in the class notes. So I immediately stepped out and I called Felipe and I said, it was his cousin, wasn't it? And he said, I can't talk to you about that. I said, no, it was his cousin. I just read it in the class notes and he hung up on me. And that was the last time I talked to him. But after Felipe died, I spoke to his son who told me that the two of them were also in the Dominican Republic causing mayhem there. And my father never told me that he was in the Dominican Republic. Fast forward to March 2020, and we all know what happened in March 2020. By this point, Judy has solved some mysteries about her father, but so many remain. There is, of course, still the mystery of Anna. Judy had ordered a DNA test, but it's been sitting around for years. I can't tell you how often this happens. And by the time she gets around to opening the box, it's expired. She has a sort of research trip planned to go to Guatemala. She wants to find Anna herself. But a shoulder injury and a global pandemic thwart these plans, and Judy cancels the trip. There's this um, Spanish word that comes up quite often in your book, trastiendes. Yes, trastiendas. Yes, it's a very particular word in Spanish that my mother used to hurl at my father. Yes, it has deep secrets. They're so deep that they're locked in a storeroom. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a great word. It's like the deepest kind of secret. Mm-hmm. Judy is thinking about trastiendas as she continues to reckon with the mystery of Anna. Who is she and where is she? And more pressing than these two questions... Judy poses another impossible question to herself, which is, how can I continue to search for a woman for whom there's not enough room in my soul? At this stage in Judy's life and research and writing about her father's past, she deeply believes that Anna is her half-sister. She's almost certain of this. And yet, to know for sure, to dig deeper, is almost more than she can tolerate. It's the trastiendas at the center of her story. I think I had some solid grounding and some solid facts that I uncovered uh, about my dad. And I think this mixture of the facts and the speculative nonfiction that I had, mixing them together, yielded for me a very profound, unshakable truth. I believe, I know my father was in the CIA. I mean, it's, you know, it's more than circumstantial. And I believe that he fathered a daughter whose name was Anna, like his mother. Where does this leave you now in relationship to your history? I mean, you write toward the end of the book about, you know, your mother's still living. She's being moved to assisted living and you and your siblings empty out 1735 asylum. You know, the, the weight of all that history. Being raised in a house full of secrets, full of sort of half-truths and made-up lives to some degree, made-up narratives. You've built a family for yourself that is loving and solid and about as far away from the family that you were raised in as you could possibly get. Right. I think I found the answers to what I needed or the answers to, to what I suspected and speculated about. And I think that I found the truth. And um, I'm very at peace with that, that I found the truth.
Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.